All right. Thank you for coming back for yet another episode. This one was a long time in the making. Uh, had to get a new laptop because it died the day we were supposed to record the first time, but we got it all fixed. So, so thank you for uh, sticking with us, Dan. Um, hey, are hey, you crazy? <laughs> hey, are you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans? It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're going to let this awesome guy, Mr. Dan Cobalt, introduce himself. Uh, hello. Yes, I'm Dan Cobalt. I'm the author of uh, several books, one of which we're going to talk about today. It's my first time appearing on the podcast, so I'm happy to be here. And I'm from I'm from the Midwest. I, I grew up in St. Louis, and now I live in Central Ohio. Okay. Uh, I didn't realize this was your first uh, podcast ever. That's um, I, You've been an author no, long I enough. I would figure. First time on your podcast, not any podcast. Oh, 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 okay. I was going to say, wow, you've been a professional author for a little bit. That's surprising. Uh, it would there would be a problem if I had never been on a podcast eight books in. I think that would be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> so the next part of the introduction, dear listeners, how we found them. So I actually found them through the amazing PR person for Bain, uh, Army veteran Sean Korsgaard. Uh, and then when I said we were having him on the show, Doc, who unfortunately couldn't be here because we're recording while she's at work, she's like, well, why didn't you just ask me? I know Dan. And I'm like, well, you didn't tell me you knew him. So <laughs> that is, that's the story and we're sticking to it. But before we get started, Dan, you get to ask the religion or you get to answer the religion question. So Star Wars, Star Trek or Firefly? Ooh, um, I'm I'm more Star Trek. Okay, what is it about Star Trek that you like more? Um, I think I just grew up watching The Next Generation, and it was more formative for me. I like them all. I like all those properties. Um, but I probably have seen the most of Star Trek. Okay, so and because we are polytheistic, thank you, Doc. Uh, we've got the next one to see see whether we stay. Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, or the Wheel of Time. Oh, hmm. Boy, that's a tough one. I um, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, Wheel of Time. So, I mean, in terms of religion, it's definitely Lord of the Rings. Read that in fourth okay. grade, and that um, you know, I didn't read. Wheel of Time until much later. Same thing for Game of Thrones. So, um, in terms of like affecting my childhood, that's definitely Lord of the Rings. But um, but I, again, I like all of those. Uh, I just finished the full Wheel of Time. I was very excited. Brandon Sanderson finished that up. Uh, so, hoping Game of Thrones get to finish too. One day, maybe. Uh, maybe Brandon Sanderson, like you said, will finish that for him. Um, <laughs> That'd be funny. Yeah, uh, I actually met Robert Jordan uh, before he passed. I was passing through Charleston, and he was a—he's a nice fella. He was very classy oh, yeah. gentleman. So, wow. all right, because we like both the fantastical and the science fiction, uh, and the scientific, I should say. What was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? Oh, it was fantasy. It was Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Um, okay, and, I, Did... and it was just a simple matter of what book was closest to me when I was that age. Uh, my parents were big Tolkien fans. So they handed me when I was ready for like the big thick book, they were like, take this one. And I was like, I'm done with that one. They're like, okay, take these three giant, you know, chunk of Lord of the Rings. And that kept me busy for a while. 
so did you uh watch the hobbit cartoon that came out in the what late 70s early 80s oh yeah oh i mean i tried <laughs> i remember it quite clearly i can still picture the graphics it um, i you know it's kind of like did you watch the early dune that they tried to adapt like pretty early on yeah i did it was cringe yeah it, it was i mean they just didn't have they didn't have what it took to make those movies and then of course now you're like the modern adaptations of the, both those properties are just so jaw-dropping. It's almost like you want to forget what came in the past. This is true. This is true. So was your first memory of speculative fiction for all the things that that umbrella, was it the uh, um, Lord of the Rings or was there something before that in the fantasy world for you? Uh, Games, books, anything, any, any version of the property. I mean, I gotta be honest. There's undoubtedly some dragon stuff that came before that. I just love dragons. And so that they were a big part of my childhood. I was super into dinosaurs, of course. And so that was like my first real passion that falls into the realm of fantasy is dragons. And so I couldn't even tell you when it started as soon as I have memories. I I don't think any... I can't imagine a boy making it out of childhood and not at least at some point in time having a minor obsession with dinosaurs. Oh, I know. What a great... I mean, it's such a guy thing, right? Just like these big meat-eating things running around totally uncontrolled and eating each other it's fascinating i mean i still i'm still very into paleontology i find it very fascinating i've actually written a short story and built an anthology around it just because i had a scene of a modern soldier fighting a dinosaur i mean (laughs) i I did the anthology around it just to justify the playtime i spent in my head writing the story which was just you know wish fulfillment from from my childhood (laughs) oh man that uh the first person game with Turok where you're like kind of battling monsters and you get weapons and those were good. Yes. Yeah. So did you watch Pete's dragon two as a kid? Uh, I don't remember it much. I, I, I have a vague memory of that. Okay. So did you have a favorite dinosaur? Because I'm going to nerd out just a little bit because Doc's not here. Oh, yeah, I no. did. It's a Stegosaurus. That's my favorite. Oh, that's a perfect answer. That's mine, too. I was. I thought you'd say T-Rex because everyone says T-Rex or Pterodactyl, but. I think the Pterodactyl, but like scientifically, I find Pterodactyl the most fascinating and obvious reasons I'm interested in flying reptiles anyway. But no, I'm a Stegosaurus guy, which, you know, if you, you probably watch like those early attempts at graphical illustration of like dinosaurs moving and living in their world. And it's always yeah. the Stegosaurus versus the T-Rex and the Stegosaurus always lost. Did you ever see any of those? I, I, like, I did. Uh, it was the Stegosaurus, the Triceratops and the T-Rex were the three that they always, <laughs> they always use. The Triceratops is pretty cool too. That's yeah. my second. Oh, really? Interesting. Uh, so that's one of the things I, I have very vivid memories of watching the first Jurassic Park when it came out. And that's surprisingly aged well. It has. I mean, and they're still making it. I'm, I'm watching the illustrated series, like the animated series with my kids. The camp. Yeah, camp, I, I watched all four or five seasons, whatever it was, from start to finish with my my It's sons. so good. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like, I feel like the story has wandered a little bit, but the fundamental aspect of hanging out with dinosaurs in a modern world is very cool. Well, the, they had to work around the, the plot point of the... Um, the main movie lines from Jura- uh, from Jurassic yeah. World and, and onward. So 
they were kind of hemmed in artificially by the existing movie. So I think with that in mind and knowing it, it sort of fit in the cracks. Uh, I, I was impressed with the storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. So but no, I, I read Jurassic park uh, probably in elementary school as well. And gosh, I, I loved all of Michael Crichton stuff when I was that age. I was kind of disappointed that they didn't stick true to his books a little more because there were so many cool scenes that they left. Like when the, uh, when the dinos swim across and they land and I think it was Costa Rica and they start like nomming on the uh, tourists in the book. Oh, that was just classic. Uh, Cause you could just see the mom like, yeah, right. There's a dinosaur as it's eating her kid. I mean, I could just uh, picture that. Cause it was like, I could picture my mom ignoring me. So, <laughs> Um, so what is it getting back on track? So doc doesn't like ground me later. Uh, so what is it about the genre of speculative fiction that you love so much? Um, you know, I think I have different answers for fantasy and science fiction for fantasy. It's just pure escapism and wanting to imagine you live in a different time, different period of history, um, and go on epic adventures, you know, like with your friends and, for me, it's pure like escapism. I love that aspect of fantasy. And then for science fiction, um, you know, it's it's both that. I like the escapism angle of that, but like I'm also a science nerd. I work in science, so I, I'm into technology and trying to extrapolate the future of current and developing technology. I just find that all very interesting and in imagining how that might play out in the future. So, uh, and that kind of a different experience for me. That makes me think of that scene where the uh, the scientist in, uh, in Jurassic Park was like, you spent so much time trying to figure out if you could, you didn't think about whether you should. Yeah, That's an yes. epic sci-fi theme right there. It is, yes. I love that. So, love how did... his, his whole character just cracks me up. That actor and is like... Coburn plays him so well. I mean, he's... Absolutely. So, how did your love of the speculative fiction as a genre transition into you writing stories in this space? Uh, painfully. Painfully. I mean, it, uh, I suppose that I, I've, I like to write in general, just put words down. And when I finally, but I, you know, I came a little bit later to creative writing. I mean, I was very into nonfiction writing as a working scientist. I'm writing like papers and uh, grant applications and things. All that requires solid writing skills, right? But, and so eventually, and I had been a huge reader for a long time. And I eventually I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I want to try and write my own stuff. And so I, I literally just signed up for like introduction to creative writing 101 type class. It was a night class. And I went in and at the time I was, you know, I was employed. I, I was out of school, out of undergrad. And I was thinking, oh, like, you know, I've written papers before. This is going to be this is going to come naturally to me. And I figured I'm going to be like leading the effort. And then I was like the worst person in my class. I was just really bad at it. And it was shocking. I was like, how am I so bad? How am I so bad at this? And I've read so many things. And it's just, it's a very different exercise to read versus to write and to write stories versus to write nonfiction. So it was a long, painful road, but that class like introduced me to peer critique. Cause we did just the classic, like everyone writes a story and we all critique the story. And we had a very good instructor who led us through that process about how you work and improve to like develop your craft. And so that was like the start for me. 
And the, the only consistent feedback I got about my stories, which were fantasy, is, uh, gee, this really feels like something part of something longer, like more epic. Because clearly I was just meant to write novels and maybe not as much the short stories. That's what it was clearly trying to tell me. So that's how I got started. And then, you know, I think it was like eight years later, I, I had my first book published or something. So a long road. So did you ever go back and tell that teacher, professor, whatever, that you uh, that you made it? Oh, great question. I did. I went back um, and saw him. He was starting. He was getting ready to teach another one on one class. I looked up when it was. I saw he was there. I went in on day one of the class. I just stopped by and I went in to tell him and I showed him my publisher's marketplace, um, you know, announcement of my first novel getting picked up by Harper Collins. And uh, he was so happy and tickled and amused by that and uh we hugged it was just i just stopped by for a few minutes but his students were all like starry-eyed like oh my god i'm in this class where he started and he's coming in saying he's got to deal with harper Collins. it was a it was a really cool experience i'm glad i managed to do that and his students it was probably encouraging for them to know it's possible i think that helps sometimes. right I, I that's what i told him i was like it can happen this is where i started i do nothing and this is how you got to start you got to start somewhere right that's, that's cool. That would be right up there with uh, being able to like take one of Brandon Sanderson's classes. Oh man, uh, some of them, some of those are online. It's almost like taking his classes. Uh, yeah, but I mean, could you imagine the difference of sitting in the the classroom? And it could it doesn't have to be Brandon Sanderson. He's just the most you know known. I probably the same if G George R. R. Martin was teaching a class. Just like somebody who's clearly been there and done that, and they're the ones sitting in your teaching you this class. It's like no, I better listen to everything they say and write shit down. Stuff. I mean, stuff. <laughs> no, I mean, if you had that opportunity, especially watching his career grow and seeing what he's been able to do, like, man, you're like, we should go, go back in time when he wasn't like immensely well-known or popular and like try and get in on those classes. It would have been very cool to do. Um, yeah. Well, he probably and, doesn't have time for it anymore. I just, honestly, the thing I wish I could learn from him the most is how to write that much. Like the guy turns out 5,000 words a day reliably. He's and, done some interviews where he talks about his word count, and they're not that high a day. He just—it's a lot of button seat time. Maybe, and maybe just, that's what it is. Maybe it's just he really de dedicates the time to it. But um, for me, like, I feel like I'm a slow writer, and that's my great tragic flaw. My, like, mine too. I, I feel that. <laughs> He, he was saying something, you know, between two to 3,000 in one of the interviews I saw, words a day, which is like right where I'm at. I know some of these authors that are churning out pulp style books, and I'm not talking about quality. I just mean they write fast. They're like writing 10,000 words a day. Uh, but, I, you know, Brandon Sanderson also has said he, he writes clean, so it's not as much wasted. You know, that probably helps too. But yeah, that man's just got a, a crazy, wicked work ethic, so. Uh, maybe one day we'll even get him on the podcast. But until then, oh, we get you, and you are just as cool. So many, many authors will let their own real-life experiences influence the stories they tell. So were there any specific formidable moments that shaped you as a storyteller? Uh, oh, there. I mean, there are. I'm just not sure I'm willing to admit to all of them. Right? I mean, there. Um, the first book that we're talking about, I mean, the first in this series with Bane is called Domesticating Dragons. And that for me was uh, a lot of that was based on my early career in genetics when I worked at the one of the genome sequencing centers that did the Human Genome Project. And so a lot of those like little inter interactions that I had or things that happened to me or like time I got in trouble, all that, like 
I drew on those a lot for the book and it, I had this very personal connection to it, um, which, you know, I'm trying to keep on the DO because I still work with many of those people, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's, that is definitely something I, I slipped into some of my stories, especially the science fiction ones. Okay. So you've been following all that stuff with the CRISPR and all of the, uh, the gene stuff. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's very relevant to our work and we have gene therapy trials going on here where I work now. And so I'm totally up to speed on that. And in some, in some ways, that's the easiest part to write of the science fiction series is the genetics and genetic engineering aspects of it. Cause I feel like I'm drawing on the non-creative side of the brain. I'm drawing on the logical side of the brain for a lot of that. And so it comes easier. I feel like the true creative, the true creative part of writing, that's where I, like flail sometimes so do you watch a lot of one of the strong themes in in a lot of sci-fi uh in space anything looking at you star wars is the cloning aspect uh do you think generic generally speaking like sci-fi gets that right or are they wildly wrong when they're writing about cloning uh cloning i mean you're talking about star wars like clone wars and stormtroopers and stuff i right. think much like much like everything in Star Wars, it's 10% fact, 90% entertainment, and I'm perfectly fine with that. Okay, I've seen others. Um, Wool, I can't remember his first name, wrote a book called Coming Home, where it was they actually cloned people, and then they sent the, the cloned content out into the stars, and then they sort of built them in a vat when they got there to populate the various planets, and they raised them like in a simulation in a tank okay. of... Yeah, so I mean, and it was purported to be hard sci-fi. I don't know enough to know. I just it was an entertaining story, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's cloning is its own is one branch of, I guess you could broadly consider it genetic engineering. I'm I'm personally I'm not that interested in making copies of of people or organisms. I'm far more interested in what we can do to manipulate the genetic code of especially uh, of living or soon to be living creatures that for me is the area of greater impact for biomedical reasons and just personal interest for me yeah i'm curious to see and it'll be a lifetime before we find out but remember there was a scientist in china that uh used crispr to try to get rid of the aids gene although he didn't ask the patient so you know he went to jail and it's china so he's probably not around anymore to ask questions um, but yeah, that was a story a couple of years ago. I'm curious to see what comes out of that, if anything. Yeah, no, I think he, there were uh, there were two children, if I'm not mistaken, that he I know who that is. With no need to name the person, he's in enough trouble. But sort of did it without ethical approval, and at a time when everyone was hesitant to use genetic engineering on human embryos just did it and like told everyone about it later. It was very surprising. And then it, I think the useful purpose that served is it made everyone in the community realize, oh, we need to like maybe voluntarily put a pause on this until we understand what the implications are. And so, yeah, yeah I mean, that's gotta be several years. The kids have to be several years old now, so. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully they're doing well. But so one of the things I think people get wrong on cloning is they automatically assume the personality will be the same too. <laughs> like it'll funny. just be a mirror. You see that in some sci-fi. I'm like, well, you know, they, they would be raised differently. So they would behave differently. Uh, so like, that's the one thing that's amusing. This isn't cloning per se, but have you read um, the Babaverse 
the uh, where essentially they clone the, the code with the the robots, the AIs. No. We are Legion. We are Bob. Oh, I mean, I've heard of We Are Legion. Yeah, he uh, basically this guy dies. I don't want to give too many spoilers, so I'll keep it generic. And they upload his consciousness onto an AI, right? Like, because mm-hmm. he's because he's yeah, there, yeah. and then that AI makes copies of itself, and so it talks about like the personality fragments because every copy is slightly different. And so it's it's amusing if you're into that kind of stuff. It's not human because at that point it's it's a robot essentially, but. You, you might dig it. You should check it out. Yeah, I, I will. So, all right. So we're going to transition from me asking all the nerdy questions, and we're going to talk about you. So transitioning from the writing and the science side, let's talk about things from the fan angle. Have you gotten anybody um, doing any cosplay of your stuff or made cool fan art yet? Oh, um, I wish. No, I would love to see somebody cosplaying any of my properties. And if anybody ever does, please let me know. Like get on my email newsletter and tell me about it. Cause I would love that. That would be awesome. Um, and it hasn't happened yet. I have, I haven't had fan art much really that I've seen, except I did commission this very talented artist to do some sketches for the dragon books, um, which are amazing. And I didn't really have a purpose or use for them. I was just like, Hey, do you take commissions? And, um, they said yes, and I was like, this is what I want. And so I just had these, like, dragon sketches and then an illustrated dragon art um, produced, and I love it. I, like, I'm just a nerd for that stuff. It's a, And also, it's, it's always good to give an artist work, right? Because it's something yeah. I have no ability at, much like musical stuff. Like, I have no ability in music either. But I was like, no, you know, so I don't know if it counts as fan art because I, the author, commissioned this and paid for it. But uh that's the closest. You're a counts. fan of the art, so that counts. <laughs> right, we'll I go mean, with it. So, um, the other cool thing that I um, I've seen fans do. So, if you're listening and you want to, you know, show it, that's kind of cool. I've had fans take pictures of books for various artists of them reading it in various cool places. So, like my favorite is a guy took a picture with my paperback copy of my book, probably one of twelve of the paperbacks I sold. Most of mine are all eBooks of like reading it when he was in Iraq. So that kind of stuff would be cool too. If you're if you've got his books and you're in somewhere unique, take a picture reading it. Those are always fun to look at. Um, I definitely had um, friends. It's mostly like other authors who are reading my book. Do that for me. Like have a photo of them read my book or of my book as they're taking it somewhere to read. And I love that stuff. I mean, I'm all for it. Absolutely. So has anybody since you started writing asked for your autograph? Oh yeah. I mean, I. I Definitely. I've done like formal autographing sessions. Like I did one at Worldcon a few weeks ago. And so naturally that's what the, that's what somebody comes up to your table for is they want your signature on a book. And so that's, you know, I've done some of those, but I'm not, I don't have the huge draw that someone like in that particular session, it was like me and a few friends of mine and then Sean and McGuire. So it was like nobody for us, 200 people constantly in line for Sean and McGuire. But um, I've had, you know, there are just people who are fascinated to meet an author in person and just want to get my autograph for that. I haven't had that experience of like being out on the street and someone like recognizes you in your face and then asks for your autograph. I haven't reached that level of fame or anything yet, but I've definitely signed things for people. Sometimes not even my books. They're just like, oh, we signed my autograph book or something like that. I love that. Absolutely. Do you remember the first time someone asked for your autograph? Um, I, 
I just, I remember my first book signing. It was in 2016 and it was at this bookstore in my community. We had, you know, 20, 25 people show up. And it's always funny the what, how book signings work for most authors who are not super bestsellers or anything. It's generally not like total strangers. For the most part, it's like people who know you and have some reason to be interested in you. So it was like, I had a few co-workers there. I had like a few writing friends there, family, uh, friends. Those are the people that came to my first thing. And so I autographed books for all of them. That, that was like the most memorable thing for me. And it just, it reinforced for me that getting support from your tribe and or your circle of supporters, whatever that might look like, is so it's going to be so important throughout your whole career. Absolutely. So have you ever spotted anybody out in public reading your books? Uh, I've I've definitely spotted people buying my books, and that's fine. <laughs> that's good enough for me. I haven't like been on a subway and seen somebody reading my book. But um, now when I was at Worldcon, there was a big bookseller in the central area of the exhibitors. And so I, like several other, was kind of hanging around that area and talking to people, meeting folks. And I would see people just like pick up and buy one of my books. I love that. And it's so funny because we're talking about my Bane books today. And there are definitely people who um, just go there and they buy a stack of Bane books. That's all they get. Like they just, And like my book would sometimes be in the stack and I was delighted. So they're just, it's very interesting to see other people's book buying habits. And when I'm part of that, so much the better. Bain is unique in that that they they've got an audience that buys Bain as the brand as opposed to most publishing yeah. houses. You know, I like X book. I couldn't tell you who published it, right? And so right. I think that is a unique thing for Bain, and they cultivated that from the beginning. They um, have, and, and you can really pick them out on the shelf. That's the thing; they have a very distinct um, appearance to them that makes them very easy to spot, and and they don't look like any other books on the shelf. And so they clearly have been paying attention to their brand and it's amazing i that combined with how good they are at distribution like i took photos of my barnes and noble just like a few weeks ago and because of the distinctiveness of all their covers and i haven't know many of the other you know like i zoomed in that photo and i started i took that photo and started drawing little green arrows where there were bane books on the shelf of like current Barnes and Noble shelf for science fiction or something. And I stopped at like 25. I mean, that's how good their reach is and how distinct their books are that really stand out. It's easy to see them on the shelf. So do you ever go in, um, you know, now that you started writing, do you ever go into like a Barnes and Noble or Books a Million or whatever bookstores are left and be like, oh, I know that guy, that guy, that guy when you're oh, walking yeah. down? I do, that, I do that all the time. I actually did that with my daughter like um, a few weeks ago at our local Barnes and Noble. We went in because they had posted, they know I'm a local author, I'd stop by. And they had posted, oh, look, we got some of these books. And they held up my book saying, uh, just came in. It was right when my um, epic fantasy book, Silver Queendom, came out from Angry Robot. And I was like, let's go up there. So we wrote, we drove up there. I brought my daughter because she's a huge reader. And, you know, I autographed the books for them and met some of the booksellers, which was a lot of fun. And then we just wandered around and... Um, we went over to the science fiction fantasy section now. I was like, there's my friend, there's my friend. And, you know, we do, authors tend to do this thing for each other. I, I wonder if you've done this for anybody, JR, is like turn their, turn our friends' books face out if they're not face out 
Like I do that for my friends. And I'm like, oh, let's oh yeah, I've done that. <laughs> or year oh, round. I mean, I've definitely yeah. done that. So the other funny one is when when people will take the mystery books and they'll they'll like turn them so you only see the the spine that like the pages, like I, I that amuses me. That's like the like a dad joke you know kind of thing to it do. Totally but, is, yeah. And and I've seen them do. Uh, one of the the local authors I know went because his book was there anyway, and he did that to the whole mystery section. I'm sure the people working in the retail that had to fix that were not as pleased as we were, but we're sorry. <laughs> right, um, yeah. So finally, what would be the weirdest or funniest interaction with a fan you've had since you started writing? Hmm. Weirdest or funniest? I mean, I, I don't think I've had too many weird interactions with people. I, well, I, this is, for me, this is the funniest. I um, This happened pretty recently. So I when my books come out, I try and get guest posts out there and I had a guest post on a pretty well-known uh, science fiction author's blog. And then like a week or two later, I got an email from a guy and the name looked really familiar. And I was like, why is that name so familiar? And it was about my book and it was reaching out. Well, it was a, a guy who I had gone to school with, but we grew up next to each other when we were like five. And that's why I remembered his, his, I was like, that's why his name is so familiar. So we were like five years old. He lived in the house next door. And my only real memory of that time was <laughs> once we, I don't know, we must've gotten in an argument or something and I bit him. And then his mom <laughs> brought him over and showed the bite marks that I had left. And I got in big trouble. That was literally my only memory of this, of this guy from my childhood. And so he emailed all these years later, we connected and we were just chatting. I was, and I had to be like, Who'd have, who'd have thought that that kid that was biting you all that years ago might someday have a book out? Isn't it funny? And so that that's like the most recent fun interaction I've had with somebody. But he found me and recognized me because of my name, but just stumbled upon me because I was doing the blog tour and stuff to promote the books. Did he remember the bite mark? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I think it was probably a memorable experience for him, too. All right. So this is where we talk about everything you have written, Dan. So so the wild world that is Dan Cobalt, like what's the Reader's Digest version of your body of work? Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I mean, I wish I could give you visual aids because I have all my books, you know, around me. But so my first three books were a trilogy with Harper Voyager, uh, starting with The Rogue Retrieval. And that's a portal fantasy about a Vegas magician who goes to a medieval world and poses as like a wizard on the other side. And then um, after that, I have these books with Bane. I have Domesticating Dragons, which is near future science fiction about a genetic engineer who goes off to work for uh, a company that makes customized dragons for like retail sale, kind of like uh, Build-A-Bear Workshop meets Jurassic Park. And um, so the second of those books just came out. It's called Deploying Dragons. And so I have that. And then I I have an epic fantasy I mentioned earlier, Silver Queenum, that just came out from Angry Robot. And lastly, I do nonfiction as well. So I have two books that are for writers that are published by Writer's Digest Books, uh, Putting the Science in Fiction and Putting the Fact in Fantasy. Both of those are based on my long-running blog series where I invite experts to come share tips about their area of subject expertise as it applies to writing fantasy or science fiction. That's actually kind of cool. A lot of authors that do the how to get rich writing books, you know, they make way more at that than their standard whatever, but it's just the same recycle. I'm not and qualified I'm not... to write about that. So. Yeah, but this is a unique, like, this is like, you know, you, you are a uh, 
working scientist. So you definitely mm-hmm. are qualified for that stuff. I've seen there's another series where like a, an EMT wrote how to write, you know, believable, like medical injuries, that kind of thing. Those are the kind of books that are actually helpful for writers. So I will definitely have to check those out because science and I were not friends in school. <laughs> it's funny. Well, I mean, it's uh it's funny because, you know, that putting the science and fiction is me and like 40 of my closest friends because I obviously I couldn't write about everything. Right. So when I started this blog series, it was for me starting to talk about genetics first. And then I was like, well, you know, there's a lot more science that I can't really speak from a position of expertise about, but I could find those people. So I found, you know, engineers, doctors, uh, chemists and, you know, all kinds of subject matter experts to come be and i would just ask them to two two things i'd be like right let's write a blog post i just want you to tell me what do people always get wrong about your area of expertise in their books shows whatever and then second part two is like how can you teach them enough to be dangerous to get the details right just enough for the average person who's not an expert in your field and so it's like those little tips of nuance, those experts here are like, hey, if you mention this and this, then I'll know you have some basic understanding of my uh, area of expertise and I'll buy the rest, you know. So that's what I asked them to do. And that's kind of what the, how the book came about is with this long running series. And it seemed like a good idea to make it into a book. So we've done that twice now. I will get with you offline to get a copy of that. So that, uh, <laughs> that sounds interesting. I, I enjoy science like from the the lay person, like I, I read the science articles, but when it starts getting really technical, I just, my eyes glaze over. Yeah. Um, I, I barely made it out of Betty Cocker calculus. So <laughs> like science and math, just, I enjoy the ideas behind it more than I do like the actual sciencey science of it. Well, that's funny because so, science is so, it's mm-hmm. such a specialized field, right? I mean, there's so much specialization that for me, even as a working scientist, like I don't know all the physics of, space travel you know and so just because i happen to be a scientist doesn't mean i'm capable to speak about that so i use the book as much as anyone else right i'm like oh yeah i need i need to have gravity in here how does how does that work again like look look up that chapter in the book oh that's that's glorious all right well we are going to pause for a moment because we're at that point in the interview dear listener where we're going to shamelessly shill for the man and the man happens to be sitting with us this time so thank you for sponsoring this episode dan but we're going to roll that beautiful Oh, I can't say that. A newly minted PhD, Noah Parker is thrilled to land a dream job at the hottest tech company in the American Southwest, genetically engineering new lines for their feature product, Living Breathing Dragons. Desperate to create the perfect family pet, Reptilian Corp hopes to put a dragon in every home. But with his newfound access to the company's resources, Noah has a secret goal. Modify the dragon's genetic code, bending them to another purpose entirely. Domesticating Dragons by Dan Kobold and Book. All right. Thank you for sticking with us through that commercial interlude. And so, uh, yeah, so that's the first book in this series. But the public relations person for Bain assures me that the uh, the second book in the series stands alone. So that's what we're here to talk about. That's Uh, true. They do stand alone. So where did you come up with the premise for the larger universe? How did you come up with the idea that is the series? Oh, I mean, it's it's really just me trying to combine two things I love. Right. I told you I love dragons and I love genetics. Like that's my day job. And so I was like, I wonder if there's some way to combine this. And that that's kind of what I came up with. You know, the genesis for this company in the book that the main character goes to work for is that they 
are working to control a real world ecological problem, which is feral hogs in the United States. Do you know about feral hogs? I do. Yeah, I imagine you did. So especially people who um, live in the South or Southwest, feral hogs are descended from domesticated pigs, but now they've adapted to live in the wild. And boy, they survive extremely well. And they're difficult to control, but uh, like a group of feral hogs can decimate entire plots of farm crops and ranch land. And so their populations are very difficult to control. So the premise of this book is that um, this half crazy inventor comes up with the idea that they're going to develop an engineer, a predator to specifically to control the feral hog populations because they're difficult to control and hunt even for professional hunters of hogs they just live in the worst areas and tangled thickets and they're in bogs and swamps they're hard to get to so they decide to develop this reptilian predator and of course they call it a dragon and um that's how the company is established is selling these things to control feral hogs and then they want to domesticate those and sell them to uh, to families for like use as pets so the feral hogs you can release a regular just farm pig and within its lifetime it will develop the traits that make it feral um, pretty quickly and i've seen them get up several tons in size um i know some people that uh, that were in the infantry with me that got in the business of hunting those as oh, a yeah. uh, as a business uh in the south when they got out just because they like guns and you know they like to hunt and yeah i mean they they can eat the pigs when they're dead so you know they they team up with a local butcher and and they've got a nice little shindig going so it's it's an interesting premise to to see what that looks like and and it's it's one of the one of the more dangerous wild creatures because it has no fear and it it it's like the the honey badger almost in, in its willingness to attack things and it's been known to kill small people's like kids and and you know adolescents because they'll trample them it's yeah, that's a dangerous. cool premise. I, I, I enjoy that. I never would have thought of that as a genesis for a book. What made that be what inspired you? Well, um, you know, that what I was like, I'm always thinking about how can we make dragons in the real world, right? And we're the science is kind of getting to a cusp where some of that could be possible. Like we have sequenced the genomes of many organisms, we know the full genetic code. And there's a branch of science called synthetic biology where you build an organism from the genome sequence up, right? So extrapolating forward, like if you could make anything, what would you make? And I was like, well, naturally I would make a dragon because why wouldn't you? They don't exist now and we all want them to. So it was my idea to have something like that happen. And so that was the genesis for the book and uh, for the idea of like, and then there's world building around that, like, well, how does this company come to be? What do they try and do? How do they exist and persist in a world where you can make anything? Because I might want dragons. Um, other people might want unicorns or something else that doesn't exist. So That is. And what that does to the ecosystem, because natural predators wouldn't exist yet for a creature you just made. So that's that's fascinating. Uh, so before we dig in, we're going to take a moment and we're going to look at this glorious cover. Uh, so can you tell us the story of this cover? How did it come to be? What was your role in its creation? Oh, um, my role in this creation is I wrote the book. And um, it's it's kind of funny because publishers are different about how they handle covers. Some of them are super um, 
proactive and engage the author a lot, and they want the author to drive some of the creative process. Um, but Bain, as we discussed, they have a very specific look to their books that they um, have built, have worked on. And so I felt like with Bain, I was going to let them take the lead because they know what, how, how they want their covers to look and they know what their audience goes to look for. So with my first book with them, Domesticating Dragons, like they said, give us several ideas for scenes that might be used for the cover. And so I did and they picked one of those and it was great. Then for this one, um, they didn't even ask me for that. They just like, they were like, boom, here's your cover. And it's funny because the guy on the cover is not a main character. He's kind of a side character. He's the half crazy inventor who started the company that I told you about. But it is a scene in the book and it's just so epic. Like it so captures the juxtaposition of science fiction and fantasy. I was like, all I could say is, wow, I, I love it. I mean, it's great. So if you could work for this company you created, would you? Oh, totally. Oh, I totally would. The cool thing is, is if you look on the cover and I'm not gonna be able to zoom in cause I, you know, the, the copy of the cover I got on, um, the, the Google search engines wasn't that great, but that backpack he's wearing for the, um, the, the flight suit, um, the jetpack, if you would, that looks a lot like the one that's in the Fort Eustis Transportation Museum, which is in Fort Eustis, Virginia, uh, wow. that was built back in the 50s uh, at the height of the Rocket Man craze. That right. was uh, based on the, I think it was a comic book before it was a, a TV show. Um, it became the movie that you're familiar with that came out, I think, in the 90s. The Rocketeer was sort of yeah. based on that kind of stuff. That started with uh, them attempting it in real life. And that, that gives me those vibes because I've actually seen that on a mannequin, which is kind of cool. I wonder if your artist did too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, there are a lot of parallels. Um, it's very cool. And, you know, it, it reminds me that in addition to this scene happening in the book, I allude to something that happened in the real world, which is um, recently in California, I think it's in the Los Angeles area in the past few years, there have been a couple times when um, airline pilots have reported what appears to be a guy on a jetpack at like 10,000 feet. And wow. it's, I mean, it doesn't get what I would think would be the appropriate amount of press coverage. Cause I'm totally interested in that. And it got like a brief blip of coverage, but it's, it's happened a couple times where it's like multiple reliable airline pilots say, yeah, you know, I see what seems to be a guy in a jetpack and you know, they, it's not like they can zoom over and go take a look at that, but it's, there's somebody that's got a functioning jetpack out in California. I just I love the idea of that. Probably I mean, the tech is somebody. The the <laughs> tech is there. The the issue is the fuel consumption is such right. that its its flight time is very limited. Um, and I imagine it's hard to control. I've actually seen videos where they've made a modern version of the one that was built in the 50s, and they actually did a demonstration. I think it was a Danish ship where they basically had Marines wearing it and and take the ship with it. Uh, launching from a platform, which is kind of cool. Um, so yeah, the the tech is getting there. So it wouldn't surprise me if there's actually some crazy inventor out there like tinkering, <laughs> right? Which is kind of awesome and kind of scary at the same time. But yeah. uh, moving on to the book itself. So what would your thirty second elevator pitch for do, um, domesticating dragons be? Well, the pitch is this. Oh, excuse uh, me, deploying dragons. We're here to talk about book two. Okay. I mean, I'll pitch, I'll happily pitch both of them, but um, 
the premise of the world is that there's this company that makes uh, customized dragons for for use in the home. Book two is when they're approached by the Department of Defense to develop customized dragons for use by the military. And so they face a whole bunch of new challenges, including going through the DOD acquisitions process. And <laughs> so it's, uh, which anybody who knows anything about, it's um, a very involved process. So the premise of the book is that they're trying to land this contract with the DOD, which essentially will secure the future of the company if they can win it. But um, the specs are very demanding and trying to produce dragons that meet the needs of the modern military is a significant challenge. Okay. And so book one is domesticating dragons where they create them. Book two, deploying dragons is where they decide to try to put them to real sort of use in the field, so to speak. Yes. All right. Now, are you going to at any point put a rider on the back of that dragon? <laughs> Channel your inner Anna McCaffrey? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's um, – I would love that. I also have people ask me, like, are you going to be able to get me a dragon? Because they know I work in genetics. Like, how close are we? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I wish we were closer. Do, do your dragons breathe fire? <laughs> oh, uh, it's funny because I, I have a story about that that's going to go up on Bane.com uh, later this month. They, um, they do not right now, and that is definitely something that people have been requesting. Oddly enough, podcasters always ask me about that. So, um, I mean, it's just so obvious, right? Like the standard trope of the dragon breathing fire. So, it is. I mean, I think that this book, I it's I pitch it as hard science fiction because there is a lot of real world science. I mean, there's also some stuff that's not necessarily scientifically accurate at this time, but um, hard science fiction with breathing fire is a tough combination to pull off. Um, and so that's what the premise of the story it's going to be up on Bane.com is about them trying to develop a fire breathing dragon for the company. It's very entertaining. Outstanding. All right. So what is it that makes the, your dragon series special? Do you think what makes it stand out? Well, um, I think that I, first of all, I not, I have not read every dragon series, so I can't say that this is unique to mine, but there are not that many that have dragons in a science fiction setting where it combines real world science and genetics with um, a creature of myth and legend, right? The, you could argue some, some places have done that. And actually when they, when Anne McCaffrey wrote subsequent books in Pern, it like went back in time to the founding of those establishment of those planets. There was all this science about how they made them. And I think it was a genetic engineer who, develop the dragons of Pern or something. But that, that for me, in terms of modern books where there's a strong scientific presence, uh, a strong scientific basis, there isn't that much out there like this. So uh, it's a, I think it's a unique juxtaposition of science and fantasy. Okay. So which tropes do you feel like deploying dragons hits the best? Huh. Um, I think that, it probably hits the science fiction trope of the whizmajig cool technology thing and what ha what are the implications of it. I mean, that's there's so much great science fiction about that. Like, you have this new thing, this new technology. Here, for us, it's dragon printing technology, like customizing dragons and being able to create different ones rooted in genetics. That's the, the unique thing that they can do. And exploring a world that has dragons in it has been the most fun for me. 
So how do they go about, and obviously no spoilers, but in your universe, are they printing them almost like a 3D printed living organism? Is it hatched uh, like we saw in Jurassic Park? Um, how are they creating these, generally speaking? It's, it's they print the eggs, so they design it, they, and they have a biological printer that creates an egg that they then incubate and or ship out depending on if it's somebody orders it because initially in the early drafts of the book uh you know my editor was giving feedback like hey how are they gonna you know get these dragons out to customers who buy them and like might live across the country because shipping an actual dragon seems like that would be very complicated and i was like yeah that's true well i was like they could ship them out as eggs that'd be probably easier so that's what happens in the book when regular run-of-the-mill customers order like the Rover dragon for their family pet, they get shipped an egg with instructions on how to incubate it for a couple of weeks. And then it hatches and boom, they've got a dragon. So did you make, uh, when you designed your dragons, did you design sort of the, the behavior pattern? So is it like a pack animal? Is it solitary creature? Like what kind of dragon did you create for this world? Well, um, Without going in too much into the reasons why, a lot of them are based on real-world dog species that perform specific functions, like in modern society. So you have a lot of dog. So they're generally loyal creatures, and some of them have special uh, uh, purposes, like there are hunting dragons, there are uh, police and law enforcement uh, dragons that are kind of like German shepherds. And so a lot of them are modeled on real world dog species and breeds that have been adapted to s- certain purposes. So do the, uh, I would assume that it's your dragons vary in size based on the, the oh, yes. subspecies, I guess, of dragon. They do. Okay. So what genre or subgenres other than hard sci-fi, which you mentioned, I don't know if dragon is a subgenre, but it should be. Um, but what, what subs uh, genres or subgenres do you feel like deploying dragons fits? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it, there are aspects that, of military science fiction in it necessarily because of what they're trying to do accomplish in this book. And that is um, slightly out of my experience level and comfort zone for writing. I enjoy reading that genre a lot. It's like a subgenre of science fiction. But that's a, that's a new step for me is the military science fiction aspect of it. Um, and then also, I would argue, especially more in the first book, there's a thriller like Michael Crichton-esque thriller aspect of it, techno-thriller aspect to it. Okay. Was Michael Crichton then um, a large inspiration for you? I mean, we've oh, talked yeah. about in the beginning you loved his books, but... <laughs> right. No, it's, uh, he was. And uh, I like so many of his different books and how he balances, um, you know, the science and medical fact with good storytelling. It's kind of funny because... Um, you know, you, you could ask somebody, well, what genre is Michael Crichton? And I think that's a difficult question to answer. And I guess they would best call it a techno thriller or something like that. But you could also just say Michael Crichton is pure science fiction. That's what it is. I mean, everything there is not, it has speculative elements that don't exist right now on the planet. So, Okay. So let's talk about the story itself. So what can you tell us about your main character? What makes him or her unique in the crowded field of sci-fi? <laughs> well, um, so my main character, you know, he's a young guy in his twenties. He's a genetic engineer. The reason he went to work for this company in the first place is he has a very close personal experience with genetic disease. And so in the back of his mind, 
he was wondering if there might be some technology here or a way to adapt their technology to help people with um, rare and incurable genetic disorders. And that, you know, I freely admit, comes pretty close to my uh, day job in working in a children's hospital in the field of genetics. But he's, um, so he has, you know, this interesting background where came from a lot of pure science, but he's also a programmer. So he developed software that like helped with the design of the dragons. And that was how we got a foot inside the door at the, at the company in the first place. So he, you know, he's got a unique mix of skills and, um, you know, I think he's an interesting guy and he's, when he comes to this company, he's not unlike me. He's not like Gaga over dragons as many people who would go for company like this would go to work for a company purely because they love dragons. Who wouldn't do that? I would do that just on the basis of loving dragons, but that's not his story. And that's not his reason for coming. But um, he, over time, he becomes like a, a dragon lover and it's inevitable of course, because that becomes his, day-to-day -day job, but he really comes over and ends up being on the side of dragons on a lot of things. I think it's very interesting for him. It's like personal journey. Okay. So, and this is just, you know, St. George, the, uh, the famous, uh, saint from, from the United Kingdom supposedly killed the last dragon as his claim to fame. So do you play on any of that with the religious aspect aspect? Cause I could almost see cults forming around pro and, and con of these kind of new creatures that are being invented um not that not the religious aspects uh of it but there is some especially in the first book there's more some aspects of what you might call the PETA community and people asking like should we be doing this and you're creating these creatures do they have rights like animals do like the PETA crowd would argue that they do and it's very interesting because the um, main character has this romantic interest and she's very much on that side of the of social and ethical issues and so it's a source of entertaining strife in their relationship you know she's very uh, she's very pro-conservation and not necessarily in favor of genetic manipulation and and he obviously works for a company that does that for its bread and butter so makes for some interesting interplay between them but uh that's more the angle i explore is is animal rights and what what it means when you create something that's totally new does it have the same rights as an animal that lived here and has existed here on the planet okay so were there any secondary characters that were especially memorable to you um there are there are two i think that i hear the most about first this guy on the cover that we're looking at that's simon redwood the crazy inventor and he shows up in every book and he's um kind of like what everyone would want their hero slash half uh, crazy inventor to be like if you met them in person. And so you don't see him a lot, but he kind of shows up at these pivotal moments, which is something I very much love. And then um, the other side character I hear about a lot is a dragon. His name's Octavius and he's the main character's like pet and that he designs and prints pretty early on in the first book. And so it, it, Octavius is like his constant companion and they get into all kinds of hijinks together, which I think is uh, a lot of fun. And, and it's one of the most common things I hear people say about my book, like, oh, I want an Octavius too. And I'm like, me too. I would love that. So can the dragons talk or is it more based on the dog where, you know, maybe some barking or whatever, but not like 
vocal conversations? It's more that they don't talk. I think that would be too much of a stretch. Um, they, but they have ways of communicating and letting you know what they want, just like a dog or a cat would. Like people who own those animals know exactly what their animals want a lot of the time, and it, it doesn't take spoken language to get there. So do you cover the, the learning process as they develop these creatures on like learning their traits of what a dragon is? Because, I mean, the very first one, like they're, they're making everything up as they go. So do you cover any of that in the books? Um, you know, it's hard for me to understand exactly what you're what you would consider covering it. But I would say um, defining what, what they can do from the basis of starting point of this is a reptilian creature with four legs and a tail and teeth and kind of like a dragon what else can we do with that that part is explored a lot um, because throughout the book they're often creating specialized types to solve a problem whether that's a customer request or a market opportunity or the need for this contract they're trying to land in the second book they're trying to adapt this creature into whatever niche it's needed to fill so it as far as like traits of of what is a dragon in your book it's a lot in keeping with with you know what we understand of reptiles a lot of it is yes i mean and there's you know the the creature that they make has parts of a lot of real world creatures and some of those traits of those real world creatures and it. it's not just uh reptiles but some of that is exploring um what are other fascinating uh, bits of nature that have genetic origins that could be brought in and adapted to meet some specific need for the dragons? That's something, especially in the second book, where they're trying to create creatures that have to hit very specific requirements, which is a feature usually of DOD contracts. Um, a lot of times they look to the natural world for inspiration for some of those things. Like, okay, well, it has to fly really fast let's look at nature and see what what wing design has evolved to support the fastest horizontal flight for a bird, for example. And so they often go looking at that because nature has had the benefit of thousands or millions of years of natural selection and evolution to find the perfect answer for many of these problems. Okay. So do you have covered the creation of maybe like an origin story of the very first dragon? Is that covered in your series or does it take place <laughs> after? No, it's funny, JR, because you clearly have something in mind that you hope is in there. And I'm just telling you, it's probably. No, no, I'm just, you know, <laughs> random questions because I, I find origin stories of the things fascinating. So I'm imagining the very first dragon that hatches and they're like, oh, great, now what do we do? And I, I just imagine that would be fascinating. I like this first, the stories for sci fi, for instance, of the very first FTL in any given universe. Like, mm -hmm. I, I find all of that just the what if possibilities are just amazing. It's true. I mean, I think the, the, origin story angle for them, this is mainly what the first book is about, is they create this thing that's a predator to control wild hog populations, but they want to take that and make it into a family pet. And that's like a big leap, right? Making oh, yeah. something that's purely wild and aggressive into something that can be safe to have around children. That's a very different type of creature, but they want to keep some of these fundamental aspects the same. And so that for them um, is this scientific challenge, but I draw a lot on what has been studied and discovered about the history of domestication of animals in human history, right? We have several domesticated animals, various forms of livestock, 
plus dogs and cats. And the story of the domestication of each of those is different. And it's very fascinating now that we have the technology to study the genetics for things like, um, you know, domesticated, domesticating dogs from wolf ancestors. That's like the pretty classic definition. And clearly wolves were taken as pups and selected for the right traits to have their loyalty and have them be protected in for ancient humans. And that's, that's not very hard to understand, but domestication of that cat was very different. It was, um, it was more of a problem solving exercise because it happened at around the time humans developed agriculture. And as a part of developing agriculture, they could store grain, right? And when you store grain, what does it draw? It draws rodents and you need some way to control those rodents. And so the history, they think of how cats um, were domesticated is that they sort of domesticated themselves. They chose to come in and take up residency in these early silos and warehouses where grain is being stored because they get a source of food and some safety and protection. Um, and in return, they eliminate these pests. And so the notion that um, cats chose to domesticate themselves is very fitting with anyone who owns a cat and knows what their personalities <laughs> are like, which I just find it so great. So does your story have any bad guys that you could tell us about without giving us any spoilers? Um, well, I mean, the person that our main character butts heads with is the head of the company. His name is Robert Greaves. And in the first book, it's because he's the CEO and essentially he controls a lot of the aspects of the company that maybe our main character would like to change or adapt to his own purposes. And so in that sense, he's um, an antagonist. Right. But what's interesting is about when I wrote these books and, and we sold the first one to Bain at the time that there was this guy who was like the chief of security who was the bad guy of the book. You know, he's the very obvious bad guy. And when Bain came back to me, they said, you know, we like this book. We'd like to buy it, but you have to be willing to make one change. And I said, really? And they said, here's the thing. Um, our audience has a lot of ex-military, a lot of police, et cetera. And they said, they're going to meet this guy and they're going to assume this is a good guy, not a bad guy. And so you probably can't have him be a bad guy in this story. <laughs> I was like, wow, you know, I didn't really think of that. But um, so he is not a bad guy now. He's he's sometimes an antagonist, but uh, he's ultimately not a bad guy for the story. And that was something I changed um you know, out of respect for the Bane audience. And so I, I'm happy with how that worked out. Okay. Um, so speaking of characters, so if yours ever met you in a back alley, you know, you, you sometimes do horrible things as authors to characters. How do you see that interaction playing out? Um, I think mainly probably with a lot of sarcasm. Because, <laughs> I mean, my main character is snarky and so am I. And we both... Uh, think in certain ways and have a scientific background. So we have a lot of more things in common than we do different with one another. But, you know, any author's job is to somewhat torture their characters, right? That's what people go to fiction for is to see characters suffering and then have them uh, find a way out of that suffering. So I think anytime an author meets their characters, there's a risk of some discomfort because of that. Okay. Absolutely. In mill sci-fi, it's uh, will I survive the experience is often the question. <laughs> I like that. Um, but, but yours is a, a sci. Well, 
Depends on if you had to wrestle one of your dragons, but you, you know. <laughs> well, yeah. If I meet one of the dragons, that's a different story. Uh, as long as they don't think you're a feral hog, you should be okay. <laughs> so, um, since we talked about characters, do you have a favorite character archetype when you're writing? I, I probably do. That's very interesting. No one's asked me that before. Um, granted, and as I told you, it's not my first ever podcast interview, but I, I very much like the mentor archetype. You know, older mentor teaches main character the ropes about something and then usually leaves the story in some way, often dies. But uh, I love that archetype, mostly like as a from a position of a fan. I love seeing that thing, like somebody teaching the next generation of hero how to do something that they're going to need to survive. And I just I love that. And when I can inject that sort of thing into my book, I can. When I can, I do. Okay. Uh, so can we get a, a quick peek behind the curtain? Were there any cool scenes or ideas that you had to cut from, from either of these books that uh, would make a cool story, even if you potentially use them later? There, oh, there is. So in the, I actually had it in this second book, but in removing it, um, I had this series of events where they, because they're kind of trying to customize these different dragons, they um, and they're trying to fill markets, that niche markets. They end up like the main character, like in a particularly snarky mood, comments like, "Well, you know, if if all we care about is marketing, why don't we just make a dragon that like carries a message and then dies immediately after that, and then a the customer has to buy another one if they want to send another message?" And of course, he makes a mistake of saying that in front of marketing people, and they're like, "Oh, could we do that?" Because marketing people, you know, they love that idea. And so he, you know, because he opens his mouth and that's often a source of trouble for him anyway, he gets tasked with trying to make this happen for the company, like as a potential production model, something called a one-way dragon that somehow, that basically would be small flying dragon. It would carry a message and when it delivers a message, it would die, which, um, is fun to think about a world where that exists, maybe a little cruel uh, for dragons, but um, he, <clears throat> so the challenge of creating something that would do, that would have that kind of existence uh, is something I worked on. And I, it, it was maybe going to be part of this book. Maybe it's going to be, but, but ultimately I wrote that as a story for Bane.com when the first book came out and it's up there for, for people to enjoy. It's called one way dragon and you can find it now. Cool. So finally, what can you tell us about the universe? In many series, the worlds where the story takes place is as much a character as the protagonist or antagonist. So can you give us a hint of what, what we can expect? So obviously we've got flying dragons. So science has evolved on the genetic end. We've got the jetpack. So, you know, that's progress. What other changes to the technology can we expect? Well, I mean, it's, it's near future science fiction and, I try to write things that I think are uplifting about science fiction. So um, it's probably the biggest difference about uh, my world in this book is that, especially when the series starts, um, there aren't really any dogs anymore because they were wiped out by a canine epidemic, which is something, by the way, I wrote before COVID-19. Um, and so that's one of the reasons this company comes into existence and tries to fill these market needs is they don't have dogs anymore to fill a lot of the roles. If you think about it, dogs fill a lot of roles in our modern society. I mean, we have, uh, in addition to just pets, 
there are seeing eye dogs, there are uh, junkyard dogs, there are police dogs, bomb sniffing dogs. I mean, they do a lot of things for us. So in a world where dogs are gone and we have to fill those with something else, why not dragons? That's my idea. So that's something I explored a lot in the first book. And then it, it's still something that persists throughout the rest of the series. Okay. So is the, so near future, then it's just earth based. Um, yeah. Oh, as yes. far as not. Okay. It takes place um, in the American Southwest. I mean, they're the company's based in Phoenix. So that, that, was a chosen location and very intentional because um, it's hot out there and heat is good for reptiles and reptile eggs in particular most of the time. So it was a natural place where you might try and situate a biotech that um, was trying to grow and sell reptiles that come in egg form. Right. So that's where the company is founded. And that's where a lot of the scenery takes place. There's some things where our protagonist goes out in the desert for, for various reasons. That's, one of the things I love most about that is that f southwestern flavor of it. At any point in time, will you add snow dragons? Because that would be pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like that idea. I mean, I think I there may be a time when they were trying to design a dragon that had to live in cold and at high altitude, and they were trying to address some of the challenges there. Um, but I like that. Maybe that'll be even like my third story in the universe will be snow dragon. <laughs> <laughs> so deploying dragons is clearly part of a series. Uh, we've talked about domesticating dragons and deploying dragons are the two books out right now. But is their story done? Is there going to be more from these characters? Uh, I hope so. I like the. I really like the series and the world. I think Bane has done a wonderful job. What I probably need to do is come up with a really great idea for what they should tackle next. Um, so I'm open to suggestions if you've got any. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're listening dear listener uh leave it in the comments i'll, I'll tag him so he can see it and who yeah, knows you might you might inspire his muse next <laughs> so um of all the technology that you invented for this world that we've talked about for the last hour uh what would you want for your daily use Ooh. i mean for for daily use probably just a pet dragon i mean I don't have any practical reason for wanting that other than loving dragons. But, um, you know, the computing systems, more practically and less glibly, the computing setup they have out there in their company is very sweet. And it's a fact about modern research, especially in my field, genomics, that compute is very important. And having access to compute is critical to do a lot of the work that we do. And so... They have essentially almost astonishing computing resources, and that could be me living out of fantasy where I had access to those kinds of resources. That would be cool for a lot of reasons, although that might give us Skynet, so it's a balancing act. <laughs> you got to be careful. It's true. So normally we would ask you how you would use and abuse that technology, but it's dragons. And I don't think there's any ways that would be acceptable to talk about on air about abusing lovely dragons. No, We're just we not those kind of people. No, we're not. So, um, when you create your your creatures, in this case, you created dragons. But in general, you know, how do you go about doing that? Do you let your nightmares inspire you, folklore and legend, or given your background, do you do you focus on like real world science and and changing things when you're making up these fantastical creatures to to include in your books? And this could be all the other stuff you've written as well. It doesn't have to just be the dragon series. I'd say a lot of the inspiration comes for the natural world. Um, 
I'm uh, really into nature and the outdoors. I'm an outdoorsman and a bow hunter, so I spend a lot of time in the woods, especially this time of year. We're recording in October, so it's prime bow hunting season where, where I am in Ohio. So I love the natural world, and nature has found incredible ways uh, to solve problems and to persist and survive, and I just find, I find that endlessly fascinating. I'm the kind of guy that loves those documentaries about the planet and the species and how they've adapted to these environments. I go, I love all that stuff. So that's often a source of inspiration for me for any of my writing is like sharing some version of a really cool story that comes from our own natural world. Okay. So uh, if you like documentaries, you should check out curiosity streams. It's like the Netflix for documentaries. I call it Nerdflix, but there, there's some awesome, awesome stuff there. It's not too bad on the price point. Um, so it's, uh, it's definitely worth, worth looking at. And there's definitely room, I would think in the natural world for inspire everything from aliens to monsters. So that, that's definitely a yeah. good place to start. Um, but since this interview is winding down, was there anything about deploying dragons that we didn't ask that you wanted to tell us before we wrap up? Uh, I mean, you kind of alluded to this, but I don't know if we stated, you didn't ask, oh, do you have to read the first book first? <laughs> And the answer to that is no. I mean, I actually know a number of people didn't read book one, just read book two. And they were not bothered by it at all. So it's not like a series where you must start at book one. You certainly can. But um, you can start in here if this sounds like it's more of your kind of story. And, and I don't think you'll be lost at all. So does this available? So I'm assuming since Bain is putting that out, there's this audio book as well as um, ebook and paperback. Well, um, the first book has an audio book. The second one doesn't yet, but I'm hoping it'll get produced soon. Okay. Well, I do know that uh, some some prominent um, audiobook narrators have uh, had to take temporary leave of absence for health reasons. There's been a couple I've heard about. So I imagine there's a really? current backlog in the production of audio content. There is. Um, I mean, there's a backlog in everything these days, isn't there? This is, this is also true. But the other problem is, is you know, the amount of time it takes to record it versus the post-production cleanup is the is another just natural body where, uh, what do you call it, um, choke point for, for audiobooks anyway. So, our, so I didn't ask this, but before I forget, what is the age range for this story? Like, for the readers, like, what would you say would be appropriate? I would say this is um, PG-13, and so it's it's pretty clean overall there's like some language um but it's definitely pg-13 like a teenager would be just fine and probably an advanced middle grade reader would be just fine i'm reading this there are no f-bombs or anything um so i try and make it pretty family friendly was that intentional or just just your style it's it's both i mean it's my style i don't that's just all my books have that rating when they when i get asked this question i'm always like yeah pg-13 Okay. Um, so before we let you go, dear listener, we'd like to remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books. And as I said before, writing and reading is a symbiotic process. So you want them to write more books you love. You got to leave the review so their other readers will find them, read them, buy them, and uh, make it worth their time. And publishers are very, very happy when you leave those reviews. So so yeah. do your part. Review it on uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Goodreads, BookBub, all the places. And if you're really daring, start a website and leave reviews there. 
Uh, and if you do start a website for reviews, reach out because we'll have you on to talk about it because I, you know, that's that's an interesting topic in its own right. But uh, now that we are bringing this puppy home, Dan, can you tell listeners how to find you? Uh, yes. My website, dancobble.com, is the easiest place to find me and learn about my books and such. But if you want to talk with me, I'm on Twitter quite a bit. My handle's Dan Cobalt. Or um, if you join my mailing list, then we can talk by email too. So uh, reach out. No, I love talking to people who are into this stuff and interested in science fiction and genetics and those things, or just fellow dragon lovers. So I'd love to hear from you. And uh, we've been doing some fireside chats lately, Dan, about various topics. And at some point in time, we might even bring up genetics and science fiction, and we'll have to have you back. Oh, for, I for love an, that. Because uh, those are fun, like bringing the science to the everyman. Um, we, we like to have those discussions. So, no, I all right. Keep me in mind for that. Absolutely. So uh, you can find us, dear listener, on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email the show at blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where all the shenanigans happen at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blastersandbladespodcast. Again, backslash groups backslash blastersandbladespodcast. You can find us on our website at www. What am I talking about? Anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades. Uh, Anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades. I started to give the other website, but it's not ready yet. So I apologize. It's uh, it's the Anchor FM one still, where you can also support us for as little as 99 cents a month. You can help keep the lights on, uh, or you can support the show more directly over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast, and I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Seska and Nick Garber, duly intoxicated they will drink until their liver surrenders and at that rate we really ought to get some alcohol companies to sponsor us because we talk about our drinking habits all the time and sometimes we actually even drink the drinks we make jokes about but uh anyway thank you for spending some of your precious time with us for nick garber and uh doc seska i am jr hanley and this was the blasters and blades podcast we'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture cheesy jokes and all things that go boom <laughs>